Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to interview episode number 12 of my sexy music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to interview episode number 12 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I am Sam Williams. Now, as per usual with these interview episodes, I like to skip my normal introduction when I do with these uh, interview episodes because I'm hoping by now I'm like literally over 150 episodes deep into this podcast. So I hope you guys understand what the show is all about and you get the premise of it. But just in case this is your first ever episode you're listening to and you don't know what the show is all about. It's a show that is meant to educate and preserve 60s music history, not just to millennials and Gen Z's, but the future generations as well. And uh, it's supposed to teach people about young people about who came before them. And it's also to show them what really great music sounds like. So that way, future generations can also make similar sounding music. Um, but yeah, so basically the show is to teach you know younger people about this music. It's not meant to regurgitate nostalgia to, to baby boomers who already know about this stuff. It's supposed to teach them about music that they may not be aware of, they may not be familiar with, and teach them about the history of those records as well. And uh, today... I'm, you know, normally what I do with this podcast is that these most of the time are solo episodes, meaning uh, I'm it's just me by myself. I'm not really with anybody else, but I'm going to do something really, really special today because this is actually kind of cool because this is not something you get from me on a normal, regular basis with this podcast. Um, occasionally what happens is that most of the time it's just me, right? It's just me talking about the history behind the song, giving them a millennial's perspective on the chords and melody lyrics, talking, breaking it down, analyzing it. But today I'm going to be doing something a little bit different because today we're going to actually have someone from the 60s who was a part of the 60s music history, historical landscape uh, in today. And we're, I'm going to have her on as a guest. And I'm very, very excited to talk to her because she's actually my first ever female guest I've ever had on this podcast and this is going to be really cool because she played on some records I know you will recognize even if you're just a casual fan of this music and you're not and you don't really you're not super deep into it I know she played on some stuff you definitely recognize um she was part of a group of studio musicians who were who were not very famous back in the 60s they became famous a lot later, like very later. I'm talking like in the 2000s. And to this day, they're still not as big as what you would think they would be. I mean, there's a couple members of the group that are pretty well known. But for the most part, these guys aren't as well known as you would think they would be. Um, you know, originally, and I'll talk about this with her too, but um, I've, talk, I've, I've, done, I've talked about this in my podcast so many times, but... Just in case this is your first ever episode you're listening to now, you don't know, like, and you're kind of just jumping into this kind of fresh new to the show. Um, basically, what I've talked about on the show before is that it was industry standard back in the 60s for studio musicians to not get credit on albums and singles, too. So um, it was it was not something that they did. They just didn't think of it. They just these records are made so quickly that they didn't think to put people's names on album credits or singles. So. Um, it just didn't happen. And there, unfortunately, was a long, there were long-term consequences for this. And one of the biggest 
things that, you know, long-term consequences for this was the fact that people for years and years and years, you know, not having a clue who the musicians were on these records and for them not to even think about it, for them not, for it to, for it to not register with them or not to even think, Oh, then if, if the Supremes aren't the, the, the player the musicians on their records, then who are the musicians on their records? You know, cause a lot of, even, even to this day, people assume that the, 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 the artists that are you know singing the song are also doing the music too. I mean, you know, it's it. Unfortunately, people get sucked into the Beatles, and the Beatles did everything, but not every '60s group was like that. There were '60s groups that just sang and didn't play any music, and the studio musicians played the music. And uh, you know, and the Beatles, of course, play their own stuff. So, like again, like like if you're just in the Beatles from the '60s, then you kind of don't really have a good perspective on the whole spectrum of '60s music. So, I'm really trying to educate people about other stuff from that time. So. Um, and that's the purpose of me doing this podcast, not just about the bands, but for the vocal groups, too. So this is going to be really interesting because um, the Funk Brothers were so creative in the studio. They could come up with different things like foot stomps and snow chains, and they could just really get creative with what they had access to because they were recording inside a tiny little basement recording studio in Detroit. That was basically a garage. I mean, that's essentially what it was. And when you when you walk inside there and you go and you walk into and you see pictures of it, it literally looks just like a garage with, you know, a bunch of different recording equipment. And that's basically what it was. I mean, it wasn't like a glamorous big studio with tons of lighting and tons of, you know, baffles and all this different cool stuff. It was just a garage. You know, and that's basically what it was. And to think that all these humongous hit records that we all know and love, at least people who are schooled in this sort of, you know, thing are, the thing that the, all those records are recorded in this tiny little garage, you know, with not much soundproof going on. It's just, it, the thing, just to even get that image in your head is just unbelievable. I mean, that's just, basically, that's what Hitsville Studio A was like. I mean, it was just like a garage. And these, you know, musicians worked day and night almost every single day on these records. And the other thing is about the, the, the Motown scene and, and, the, and specifically the label themselves is that they didn't always have a revolving door of studio musicians. They had one group of guys and they stuck with them for basically all of the hit records. So you can just imagine how much work these studio musicians back, you know, in the 60s for Motown and Hitsville and Detroit were getting. I mean, you know, they were playing on everything by all the artists that were coming into the label. Everyone from Marvin Gaye, the Marvelous, the Supremes, the Four Tops, and Temptations, the Stevie Wonder. I mean, everybody was, they were all, used, they were all using the exact same guys on all their records. Because Detroit wasn't like Nashville or L.A. or New York, where there were different pockets of studio musicians that people liked to use depending on who was producing the session. All the producers and all the arrangers at Motown basically used the same group of guys because there wasn't really too much elsewhere to go. I mean, the you know Motown and all of its subsidiary labels basically dominated the Detroit music scene back in the sixties. I mean, I mean Barry Gordy bought out Golden World Records, which was one of, and Rick Tick. You know, those are those are one of the only two other labels besides Motown that were having any sort of success in the Billboard Hot 100 charts in Detroit. So. I mean, there there is sort of a dom there is sort of a dominance as far as Barry Gordy and Motown in Detroit and popular music at that time. I mean, he was the absolute king. I mean, it wasn't like you know L.A. New York or Nashville. There was a bunch of different labels and a bunch of different things happening. It was all 
you know, Detroit was almost sort of like a one-label city. And today, we're going to be talking to a person who was a part of that scene. She was uh, a female studio musician with a bunch of dudes. And that's kind of interesting to think about it because, you know, it's you think that most of those people would be guys who'd be, you know, performing on these records. But she was a female. And I love to get her perspective on that as well. And I, I guarantee you, even though she wasn't James Jamerson, Robert White, uh, or Benny Benjamin, or Jack Ashford, anybody, any any well-known person from this sort of uh, group of session players, I guarantee you, you'll recognize her playing because she, you know, she, you know, her, she, she since she was a flute player, and that's also interesting too, because, like, why would they need a flute player on these records? I mean, that's that's another thing I'll talk about with her. But, you know, the thing is, is that. Um, you know, even though she wasn't a well-known name, you know, her you can pick out her playing almost instantaneously. You can listen to her records and you know, the stuff that she played on, and you can pick her out almost instantly. So that's how, you know, good she was. I mean, like, she, and, and since she, there was only two, one of the person as part of the Motown Hitsville Studio A scene that could play flute. So she got so much work as a flutist and a piccolo player back then. And with with, you know, in, in the Hitsville Studio 8 Detroit scene that, I mean, you know, she, you know, she was on so many records with so many people that I really can't wait to talk to her because I can't wait to hear the stories behind some of the people that she worked with from the Motown Arrangers to the studio musicians. Like, I want to know, I want to ask her what she thought of James Jamerson and Robert White, Eddie Willis and Benny Benjamin and all these and the Earl Van Dyke, all these different musicians that she that she knew personally and she and she knew on a personal level, not just on a professional level, but also on a personal level. I can't wait, you know, to talk to her and ask her questions like that, because that's going to be really, really cool to get her, you know, just to just to hear what these people are like, because a lot of these people are gone now. So it's hard for it's, you know, it's difficult. You know, it's hard for me to ask, like, you know, it's I, I'm never probably never going to meet a lot of these people because a lot of these people passed away so many years ago. So. Um, I'm very, very excited to talk to her because it's going to be really great. And I'm going to ask her, you know, what she thought of being an unknown studio musician at that time. And it's going to be really good. So, um, you know, hopefully it turns out better than the last Motown guy interviewed on my podcast. But we'll see. But for now, I'm going to introduce her. I'm going to get her queued up in just now. So without further ado, here is the 12th interview episode of this podcast with the flutists on records like Reach Out, I'll Be There by The Four Tops, and also records like My Whole World Ended by David Ruffin. Here, here she is, Mrs. Dana Hartwick. Hello, Sam. Hi, Dana. How are you? Oh, I'm doing okay. You're right on. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm very, very excited today. Holy crap. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's man. Good. I'm, oh, my God. It, it feels such an honor to get to talk to you today because I just want to say that, you know, ever since when I, when I was a little kid, right, I grew up listening to oldies radio and I always, like, you, you've always been a part of my life. Like, your flute playing 
on those records, it's like ever ever since I was a kid growing up listening to oldies radio in LA, I always remember hearing your flute parts on records like Reach Out, I'll Be There by The Four Tops and Tears of a Clown by Spooky Robinson and Miracles and My Sharia Moore by, you know, Stevie Wonder. And I, it's funny because when I hear your flute parts, you know, it's, it, it, you know, you're, you weren't like one of the b biggest names as far as the Funk Brothers is concerned, but you were so recognizable because whenever people put these records on, when literally a needle drop, you are heard almost immediately. You were just, your, your, your parts on these records were just as prominent, were just as important as some of the other parts that these other Motown musicians are playing on these records. And the, and the thing is with my podcast is that it is designed to educate and teach millennials and Gen Zs about who came before them and talk to them about the music business of the 60s. So that way, hopefully, they don't make the, you know, they don't run into the same issues and the same mistakes that a lot of business people made in the music business back in the 60s. But it's also to show them what really great songs sound like. This is what real songwriting, real musicianship is like. And that's 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 the one one of the reasons why I, I do this podcast, because growing up, you know, I didn't I didn't meet a whole lot of people in my age group who were really, really passionate about this uh, this music, you know, the stuff from the 60s. So I really want to change that. And hopefully one day I won't be the only, you know, 25 or, you know, early guys in the early 20s or, you know, I won't be the only young person who's really, really passionate about this stuff. And one other thing I want to say is that one thing that I, I, I teach my listeners uh, of this podcast about when it comes to music from this time is that back in the 60s, um, it, was, it was before the internet, right? So it was before the information age when people could easily look stuff up and find stuff out in, in like a, in seconds. I mean, there wasn't anything like that back then. So because of this... You know, it's so easy when you when you when you when you listen to a song or just hit the charts or just became really really popular to find out the credits as far as, you know, who who like who played on this who played on the song whether it be the musicians, you know, who produced it, who arranged it, who did the mixing. I mean, it was, all this stuff is now super super easy to access and it's super like literally within seconds people can find this information. But back then it wasn't like that because I've talked about this before on my on my podcast that. It was industry standard back then for studio musicians to not get credit on records, whether that be 45s or, or LPs. I mean, it just didn't happen. I mean, the, the producers and the songwriters... You know why? Uh, I, well, I, I love to for you to explain that to me because I've always been curious about that. And I also wanted to ask you, how did you feel like going through life, you know, I'm because I'm sure you've been to a, like a grocery store or you know, or Starbucks and you, and you hear your songs on the radio and, you know, and people don't really know exactly that's you playing that flute part on that record or that piccolo <laughs> part. Like, did, like when you talk to, the, when you just have conversations with these people, when you're just like, you know, like literally at these places and, you know, and you try to tell them, hey, that's me playing flute. I'm like, and they're like, really? I didn't know that. Is, is that true? They didn't believe me. Most oh. of the time they don't believe what? me. What? <laughs> that's crazy. No, oh I my... said, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> wow. Holy shit. That that's 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 unbelievable. But I mean, because that's the thing is, is that I feel like that was such a such a bad thing to happen with studio musicians not getting credit back then, because, you know, it was without these studio musicians, these songs, these records would have never happened. You would not be hearing these songs today if it wasn't for 
these studio musicians. And I really do feel well, like... Well, there's a reason for that. Yeah, I, I love for you to explain that to me because I've always been curious about that because, like, for me, finding out who played on specific records from the time is like me, like being like finding out who are the who are the members of like my favorite baseball team that won the World Series of this particular. Not that I care, care about sports really, but it's the equivalence of that. So I love for you to explain that to me. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason is that Gordy would not allow our names to be put on the albums. Wow. Yep. That's crazy. Yeah. And uh, the only one you will find it on is what's going on. Wow. That's just unbelievable. I mean, like, I mean, I know that, I mean, this, this, this happened pretty much in every city, too, for the most part. I mean, the only real studio musicians that really got credit and became famously huge were Booker T and the MGs, you know, at, at Stax mm-hmm. in Memphis. But other than that, it was mostly, uh, it was most of the time, it wasn't like, any, any, most of the time, you never, you never saw their names on, on, on any of these records. So just, you know, and I kind of want to ask you that. So, um, you know, knowing, knowing that, do you, do you wish that you, you got, you got credit back then? Do you wish that? Oh, you, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, see, the thing is, first of all, I was younger than the others. Yeah. I was not even able to drive. Wow. Uh, yet. That's and, crazy. Uh, starting at the very beginning, um, I was brought into my uh, first session. Uh, my dad drove me there, and uh, I had a cast on my leg. Right. So uh, three of the Funk Brothers carried me in. Wow. And it was James Jamerson, Joe Messina, and Robert White. Wow. <laughs> was that was that for was that for reach I'll be there? Was that it? was the first day. That wow. was the first day. That's crazy. And actually, actually, I think they recorded that uh, the day before too. But one of the flutists uh, just walked out and never uh, never wanted to record for Motown. So wow. that's how I wound up there. So they didn't use the first recording. They didn't. They did the second day. Wow, that's really really cool. And um, now let me now another thing I want to ask you is that. Uh, this was this was in 1966. So a lot of people don't realize this. Motown. Was... That was, it came out in '66. We did it in '65. Really? No yeah. way. Well, very often when you see, I don't know if you have Sirius Radio. Oh yeah, but I if do. you see the dates on this, that's not the date it was recorded. Right. It was usually a year or a couple years right. before that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But one thing I wanted to wanted to you know ask you is that you know at that time. With Motown, I mean, a lot of people don't realize this, but they were one of the very first record companies to get an eight-track tape machine. So in 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 America at that time, I mean, Atlantic got theirs in '58, and then Motown got theirs in '60, late '64, early '65. So they were able to do stuff, basically, you know, mo- do overdubs and not do everything all live in like two or three, four takes. I mean, a lot of times they were able to. You know, spread stuff out in different days. One day they do the rhythm section. One day they do the horns. One day they do the percussion. So they would do stuff on different days way before it was industry standard to do that with computers and everything. So they're one of the very first companies to do that. So when you when you uh, came in and did your flute part, was everything already done already, or were you? Uh, It it always varied. Yeah. And very often, I would actually uh, play with the Funk Brothers. No way, really? Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. They were, in, they were in the main room, and then there were a couple, like three booths that we could see the main room. But we had to be separated, well, just a few of us, 
uh, or sometimes just myself and uh, somebody else, you know, depending on like drummer that had to be separated because the uh, sounds could not bleed right together. Yeah. So very often I was in another room looking through a window with to the Funk Brothers. In fact, uh, one one particular one that I really remember the date of recording it, the day um, was uh, Tears of a Clown. And uh, I was sitting in a booth, like I said, with the Funk Brothers, and um, myself, the oboe player, Ronnie Oldmark, and uh, um, Charlie Serrard, the bassoonist. So it was the three of us were the three main uh, woodwinds in Tears, right? Right. Right. Okay. So um, we're playing along, and you know, we wear headphones, and um, uh, both Ronnie and... uh, Charlie, we're with the symphony. I just, Detroit Symphony. I just subbed with them occasionally, uh, actually even when I was in junior high school, but that has nothing to do with this. Um, Okay, so we'd be playing, and Ronnie uh, uh, very often recorded with me, but that was the first and only session that Charlie Odmar, I mean, yeah, right, Charlie Serrard did uh, The Bassoonist. And so uh, he wasn't used to this. So anyway, we're, we're playing through and every couple minutes we're, we're doing a take. And then he, he uh, starts talking into the microphone, asking questions because he wanted to be so perfect, you know. Well, we went through 32 takes wow. <laughs> because he kept asking questions right while we were doing the takes. Crazy. And, you know, he was so good. And no one had the nerve to tell him what was going on. So that, that's such that's such a cool part. I you know I'm a, I'm a musician myself, so it's I, I love that that bum 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 bum. That's yeah. so cool. I mean, I mean, I, that's just incredible. And it just when when you recorded that, was there like the, could you hear like the percussionist in the other room or like like? Whoever's... Oh no no no. Uh, they did that at the different time. Oh. That, that particular day, I just remember. The three of us woodwinds uh, and the Funk Brothers. Wow. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I don't even. Yeah, and always, uh, if there are strings, that was always separate. And sometimes at Studio B, which was called Golden World. Right. Exactly. And I did record with them sometimes. Oh. But very often I was. Very often, I was just with the Frank Bobas. Wow! So, so yeah. as far as like, do you remember what Golden World sessions you did? Because I, I love the Golden World stuff. I mean, like, oh, there, <laughs> uh, from '65 to '72 uh, when they left, constant. I mean, I was there all the time, both of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, see, oh, Golden World was a lot large. It was a large room, right? So if there were more like strings playing. That's primarily where they, uh, you know, use that. Or, right. or the guitars, sometimes they, uh, we, well, I did a lot of overdubs too, which means everything was down already, and then right. I would do my part separately. Yeah. Right. One outstanding one, uh, I well, I'm sure you've heard of this, but my whole world ended the day you left me, right. David Ruffin. Right. Okay. Now, the whole intro is just me alone. Wow. On piccolo. On piccolo. Wow. And the part was so difficult that whenever they went on the road, they couldn't do that one. That's crazy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I land on this real high note. 
And uh, sometimes, and then later on in the piece, it there's this run that yeah. continues on. And I, I just added those things myself. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And, and let me know that actually, I think I, I was reading up about this. Wasn't it kind of based off of the classical piece a little bit too? Like I've, I've, I've read about that and there was some classical piece that basically that, that you, that, that was very similar to that part that you played on that record. Um, I'm just wondering if you, if you, if you were, no, ever... nothing sounds familiar to me. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Wow. That is so cool. Now I, I, I got to ask you about you know, some I got I got to get some stories about from from you from some of the Funk Brothers because from what I've read, one that one that a lot of people don't talk about too much is Eddie Bongo Brown. Eddie Bongo Brown, I was reading up about him, you know, and he was kind of the jokester in a lot a lot of these sessions because, you know, he well, a lot of times what he would do is that during the really sort of intense, very like long sessions at the Snake Pit when they were just doing take after take after take and it was like. And, you know, just to just to just to ease up the tension, he would crack some funny jokes. So, I mean, I would love it if you could share an interesting story about. Well, unfortunately, very often uh, they did those separately and I was oh. not even involved. Oh. So I did not. Uh, maybe occasionally if there was uh, something where a bigger group and he was part of it at at uh golden world but other than that i was not part of that i didn't hear any of those jokes <laughs> wow that's crazy um one another, another thing i want to ask you is that when you when you how difficult for you was it for you to land that my sharia more sort of that that the opening flute part because it because it starts on the three there's a pickup note so i'm just curious like did it did it take you like did it take you like a few 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 takes to do that or did you just like or did you no just get very often like, i just did it right off wow that's crazy and paul riser one of the original uh in fact he was the uh arranger on that yeah but i also on others i went to high school with him too no way at, at cast tech yeah he played trombone in the band and wow. as he did you know play trombone at motown that's so now cool. he's not the one who got me to Motown, but it just so happened that we were both there. Wow. And, you know, you know, who was the person that got you to Motown? Um, well, I was playing in a park band before uh, the night before. Right. And uh, the president of the musicians union uh, came up to me and said, you're wanted at Motown tomorrow. And, you know, the. Motown wasn't real well known at that time, so I thought, "Is that the Motown?" <laughs> right. So anyway, that was that was how it started. Wow. Um, one one other thing I wanted to ask you is that, um, you know, because I was I was reading up reading up about this too, like the 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 stu you know, isn't it true that mo the Motown sessions were non-union? So a lot of these uh, a lot of the a lot of the uh, musicians that are playing for Motown were specifically getting paid on the table. Like, I mean, they were uh, making. Before 1965, oh, when I when I started there, they they went union, but very often, you know, they made out contracts, right? And uh, because it was just the beginning, my name was left off the majority of the contracts. Probably number one because of my age, number two because they were just beginning, and uh, I would normally get residual. Well, now we never got residuals, but. Right. Occasionally, if it's in a movie, if one of our songs is in a movie or something, but my name doesn't show up till 72. 
Wow. And that's when they went to that's when they went to uh, L.A. L.A. In yeah. other words, I was gypped out of so much money, and we had stubs uh, to get. Um, we were allowed like three, uh, four to begin with, and then later on it was three uh, recordings in uh, four hours. That's how we were paid. Wow, sixty-five dollars, and no residuals or anything. But uh, like I said. Um, but my name, they just left my name off, and I didn't know any better. I didn't know much about the union. I was only, you know, 15 years old. So, wow. So, I mean, and, uh, you know, they, at that time, well, my mom did my income taxes, but they say, well, keep your stubs for, uh, you know, pay stubs for like seven years or something like that. Well, she did that, but then she threw them away. Wow. And after that is when everything if I would have had those stubs, I would have probably been a millionaire. That's they were all crazy. gone. So there was no proof. Yep. Wow. That's that's unbelievable. Um and- I guess I should have gotten an entertainment lawyer or something. But again, I didn't know about it and then after so many years goes by, you know, it's kinda like useless. Yeah, I hear you. Um one thing, one other thing I wanted to ask you is that, uh, did you, did you, were you ever friends with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra guys? Did you ever like interact with them or talk to them? Cause. Oh yeah. I used to play with them. Oh, do you have any stories about them? Like Felix Resnick and Alvin score and guys like that? You know, I loved it. I love for you to talk about them cause. Well, they weren't my favorite people, but. Oh, okay. I mean, some of them were. But uh, not necessarily the string players. I mean, I knew them well. Yeah. And Gordon Staples was the head of the thing, you know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one really cool sort of non-Motown record that utilizes the, you know, the, you know, the Gordon Staples Detroit Symphony Orchestra, which has, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the Funk Brothers on it, too, is called Hungry for Love by uh, the Sam Remo Golden Strings. That was, that you know, was... it wasn't until uh, just what about... Uh, Four years, and I loved the album. I had the album. I don't know if I do now. It got caught in a flood. But I just realized about four years ago, I didn't know the San Remo Golden Strings was the Detroit Symphony Strings. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they were basically, they were, they were, they were trying to go under a different name. And that's one thing I wanted to, you know, teach people about, specifically about the Funk Brothers, that they did so much stuff for other labels. I mean, like, just like oh Ro- yeah, just like Romeo and Juliet, and oh how happy, and you love keep lifting me higher and higher. I mean, they were on other labels, you right? Know, simply, simply because Barry, Gor- you know, Barry Gordy wouldn't pay him that much, and then other producers paid the, you know, out- offered to outpay Barry Gordy, you know. For- well, just like I uh, played for, um, it was called United Sound, also Stax Records, uh, Isaac Hayes. Wow, I did all I did all of his stuff. But That's again, crazy. my name was not shown on any contracts. Wow. But I did, I actually, he did his first two albums. Hot Buttered Soul was one. I forgot the name of, uh, I think he did two others. At, I mean, while well, I was recording with him anyway. But before he uh, did a live show, and they, one was at Pine Knob here, and the other was at UFD. And oh, wow, they were the wildest things. And, showman i mean not just singing where, where they were the his well so far so-called girlfriend you know it was like i said a show oh she'd had an ermine coat and he was wrapped up they were wrapped up in chains and i mean it was not only the singing it was like a, a show like you wouldn't believe it was amazing wow 
Um, one thing I wanted to ask you was uh, with uh, did you did you ever like wh- when you were laying down your parts? Did you ever get to talk to like Stevie Wonder or Smokey Robinson or any of the? Oh, art? they're my good friends. I oh, see really? Smokey quite often. <laughs> no way. He also, he also has a place in Palm Desert, and my uh, cousin has a place there. So when I go visit her, uh, we go see his shows and and we t- talk to him. And I like I you know introduced him to her. Wow. And uh, yeah. And then Stevie, too. And he always invites me somewhere. But the fact is that to drive somewhere and, and park, you know, to get to these big shows, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he goes there in a limo naturally. So Right. But anyway, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, see, well, I haven't seen him in a long time. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you have any stories about James Jamerson? Because... One thing I've one thing I've read about James Jamerson is that he kind of had a split personality to a certain extent, and he also got involved with alcohol a lot, you know, and that and that's one of the reasons why his career kind of went downhill, and his alcoholism basically made him, you know, not as reliable to Hitsville to a certain point. And that's why that's why they they replaced him with Bob Babbitt because you know he wasn't showing. No, up. no, no. Oh, they didn't really? replace him. Well, they didn't replace no. him. No, they didn't. Re- Bob Bob did this stuff from Philadelphia, and that he actually didn't do much here in Detroit. Right. What, but what uh, I, he did. Yeah. What, what I what I was saying. Sorry, I should have I should have said that they were, you know, when when Jamerson wasn't becoming as reliable as he once was for a lot of these sessions, that's when they started to ease in Bob Babbitt a little bit to play on some of this stuff. You know, because you're right, because before he was... No, playing. they recorded things in different time. I mean, different places. Right. That, that's how Bob uh, got involved. But oh. as far as Jamerson, uh, he was kind of on the uh, drug thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and but I don't know. I wasn't aware that he was unreliable or anything. I just know he was getting sick. Yeah. I, I Yeah, he, 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 was, he was dealing with some alcohol issues and you know and a lot of a lot of that is the reason why he you know he you know that's that's one of the reasons why they brought in bob abbott because he was someone that you know that you know when when james was you know when that was starting to get, get to his head and he wasn't you know he he wasn't showing up to sessions because of because of this and other things too that's why they brought in Bob Abbott. And I, I was just curious if you had any stories about James. Because I, I know that these guys, another thing that these guys did, which was kind of cool, was that they played at the 20 Grand. They played at the, the jazz clubs in Detroit when they weren't. Yeah, running, but they, not Bob Babbitt, though. Right. I don't remember him recording here. I mean, if he did, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, if so, like I said, then it was part of the Funk Brothers, and I wasn't there. That's what oh, I'm saying. Gotcha. Yeah, because I know he did the majority of stuff in uh, Philadelphia. Actually, while I was on tour, I met him down uh, where he was living. Wow. That was after recording, you know, because after I was recording, I went on the road for 10 years with uh, Broadway shows. Yeah. Um, can, can you tell me about Marvin Gaye for a minute? Because Marvin Gaye was someone that is it's he's pretty iconic today, but so interesting because he sort of had this battle with Motown for a long time over real creative control over his stuff. Cause for a long time he had, you know, other writers, you know, write writing for him, but he really, really wanted to you know, put on the producer's hat and actually uh, produce his own stuff. And uh, I mean, one, one thing I will say is that 
it wasn't really until the originals baby on for real is when you know barry gordy really allowed him to produce his own records because at that point he had people like norman whitfield and you know mickey stevenson other people sort of producing spoke robinson producing his stuff for him so can you tell me a little bit about him you know or your your experience well i think they were i think they were really good friends they were very close yeah and um uh I don't think there were any problems there. The problem arose when he wanted to do what's going on. Oh yeah. And and uh Barry almost uh squelched the whole thing. Right. But uh he insisted on doing it and now we're into uh we just did the fiftieth year of that. Right. So so it became probably the most popular thing he ever did. Right. But I love the stuff he did with uh uh, well, everything, but with Tammy, that was like, yeah. Amazing. Did you did you did you ever do anything for Nick Astor and Valerie Simpson and you know and those writers? Did you ever? Like... Yes, actually, one of the first things I ever did was uh, well, no, that's Marilyn Monkou. Um, uh Aquarius. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. That that wasn't that wasn't even a, a I, that was that was for uh, that was for Soul City. That was yeah. yeah that was that was for uh, Just, that was. Johnny uh, Johnny Rivers's label. Yeah, that was that was a that was a West Well, actually, you know, the second thing I ever recorded was uh, is it Tracks of My Tears for Johnny Rivers. Wow. Yeah, yeah, Tracks of My Tears. Or there's another one he did. I can't remember. Huh. That's so that interesting because I always yeah. thought that was Bud Shank because that was a West Coast recording session. Because um, I know that he was a flute player that the that Lou Adler liked to use on a lot of his songs. Um, you know, he was the guy playing the flute, uh, playing that also flute solo in California Dreamin'. So uh, that's interesting that you uh, you said that that was you playing that part. That's really cool. Not in uh, California Dreamin'. Right, but in tracks, in, but Johnny Rivers' version tracks my tears. Oh right? yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so. When when uh when when you when when Hitsville left Detroit in like seventy two, I want to yeah. say like like seventy two. Um, did you like where 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 were you at as far as okay? What what am I gonna do next? Uh, like where did you did you did you do okay for a while with with Motown being gone from Detroit? Well, or? actually, we didn't get much warning that they were leaving. Oh really? There was little talk of it, and that's all. Little talk of it. Wow. And um, when it happened, uh, not long after that, I actually went out there, but I went out there on my own. Wow. And uh, that's when I was told um, we wouldn't have enough work here for you to live, not just me, because, number one, they weren't recording records there for a long time because that's when he went into the movies, the three movies. Right. And uh, actually, the one movie, um, Mahogany, they, for a while, uh, they would send in the tape for me to put my own part on, for instance, Mahogany. Uh, but, I mean, other than that, it's just a couple things, so I d didn't stay out there at all. Wow. And they didn't go into recording till after those movies were over. And then it was completely different. Some right. other people got into, you know, recording and saying they were with Motown. Well, they were, but it was a different Motown, actually. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, things changed quite a lot 
at yeah. that point. I mean, I mean, they were using a totally different group of session guys. I mean, it wasn't definitely wasn't the same people that were there from, you know, from 60 to 71 in Hitsville Studio A. It was a completely different group. Oh, nobody from here went out there. Maybe a couple of the yeah. brothers. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. I think I think yeah, yeah, most yeah, for the most part a lot of those guys stayed in Detroit. Yeah. Um but yeah, um so that's you got you got to, that's really really cool. But one more thing I wanted to ask you was um, you know, I'm you, you know about the wrecking crew in in LA with you know, and there was like one female member out of a bunch of guys, and it was and it was Carol Kay, and then you were you were kind of like that with the Funk Brothers in Detroit because it was mostly guys. Did, did was it was it mm-hmm. ever awkward being like one of the one of the one of the few girls there with a bunch of dudes or? Well, actually, I was so shy. Oh really? Oh my goodness, I could hardly talk to anybody but i always fit in because um they would be so friendly to me right but i didn't know until after motown left uh there was a birthday party for someone at some club or something yeah and um i i went there and it wasn't until then that the guy said to me you have no idea how we protected you wow yeah that's yeah. that's so no, cool. No, I did have no idea. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because you were like you were just like a teenager back then, right? Right, you were, right. You were you were still in high school. That you must have been like the the coolest kid at school at that time. You know, playing on well, playing on these sessions. when I was uh, playing uh, subbing with the Detroit Symphony for children's concerts while I was in junior high. Yeah. Oh no, <laughs> no, what they put me through. I before I left, I'd be in the. Uh, lunch room and they'd throw cherry pies at me and really? i mean they yeah i don't know if it was what it was jealousy or uh or that i don't know what it was wow. but i mean i went i went through a lot and it wasn't really nice <laughs> wow plus plus it wasn't just then it's like trying to be a woman at that time and fitting in i mean I was so gypped out of a lot of things. I'm right. not talking about Mo- I'm not talking about Motown. I'm talking about a woman generally young trying to get into the music business. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Wow, that's that's No, but Motown was great, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um so one one of the coolest parts that I, I love that you did on a record was a special occasion. By Spokey Robinson, the Miracles. That is such a great little like flute part. And let me ask you this: Now, a lot of times when you were when you were like you know you know playing these parts, did you have any say as far as being able to make make things up, or did you just like you know did you sight read whatever uh, you know that they that they gave you? I mean, I'm just curious. Uh, well, first of all, I did special occasion, but I don't even remember how it goes right now oh it starts <laughs> it starts that e major <laughs> starts that e major seven and then it goes oh F-sharp, yeah yeah F-sharp major seven and then it does those those little guitar licks that eddie willis does at the bottom i mean that's yeah like, yeah that's 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 how the song goes it's really well, really very, good yeah sometimes you know something was written for flute and i i'd say I think that sounds better on piccolo. So I would just do it on piccolo. Right. And every once in a while, if there was a little thing here or there, I'd make a suggestion and they'd always go along with it. I mean, I didn't do that much uh, changing of anything, 
But uh, in fact, I didn't change anything. I added something occasionally, you know? Yeah. Or like I said, I also played uh, alto flute. Right. In, um, and I also have an electric flute, which I hooked up to a maestro unit. My um, I did this on my own, and uh, this flute had a microphone in the head joint. Yeah. And and uh, then you'd press all these buttons, so it was like the interlude of, that's what heartaches are made of with the marvelettes. Wow. And there's an interlude, but you would never know it was a flute. It sounds like, oh, uh, uh um yeah i'm drawing a blank here anyway the um joe messina was uh doing the wah-wah pedal when i did that wow so if you hear that you'll say oh my goodness what is that well it's the electric my electric flute but you'd never like i said never know it was a flute wow and i had a display up at greenfield village which is a big deal here in dearborn uh, michigan uh for one year and this is back while I was on tour. But anyway, um, and so I donated my electric flute, the maestro unit. And uh, just last year, I also donated a, a piccolo. Wow. So they're, they're expanding Motown to a whole block. That's crazy. And they've got all kinds of donations. And uh, so eventually I'll have my own display up uh, at Motown to stay, you know. That's really cool. Um, you know, one other really cool flute part you did, which I want to ask you about, is the happening. Because, you know, I one thing a lot of people don't know is that Motown was still was doing stuff, starting to do stuff in L.A. at that point in like 67 i mean more love was cut in la and also there was another record called every little every little bit hurts by brenda holloway that was an la session too i don't know if you if you knew that but that was hal davis producing it and that was that was definitely uh an la session and uh that was one of the very first things that motown put out that was an la session so when you did the happening was that was that the same thing where you just like were you, were you uh were, was were you like were you there with any of the funk brothers when you did that song cuz that's a really cool part, cool flute part oh, too yeah. Oh yeah oh yeah I I'm guessing that was about 67 or Yeah 67 like exactly yeah. yeah Anyway and then uh the movie came out the happening Right and with the Supremes and uh we and with um Anthony Quinn Right and uh, we went to the United Artists Theater downtown mm -hmm. for the uh, for the opening of it. It was it was really exciting. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that was one of those songs where it's like it was it was a move it was like it was all it was a movie but the movie flopped but the but mm. the movie with the song became a lot bigger than the movie actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, that was piccolo. That wasn't flute. That was piccolo. Right. Exactly. And then, you know, later, uh, much later, um, yeah, long after, uh, Slutsky, I can't think of his first name, but he was producing this uh, Standing in the Shadows of Motown mm -hmm. after Standing in the Shadows of Love, you know. Right. That's, his name um, was Alan Slutsky, by the way. That's, yeah, yeah, I know. And he, uh, we never got paid for that. Oh, really? And uh, I was in that movie, too, but it's right at the beginning, you know, and I'm way over to the side, so it's just a couple little 
nips here and there. It's hard to see. Yeah. They didn't they didn't know I was there that day, evidently. Wow. Because they showed close ups of people that had nothing to do with Motown. That's <laughs> crazy. As the musicians, yeah. Wow. But anyway, yeah, and he said, Oh, if this becomes popular, oh my goodness, he won awards on it. And we still never got paid. Wow. That's that's really that's that's unbelievable. You know, um, mm-hmm. but yeah. Um, so it's funny because when, when I when I hear your, your flute playing, it, it's almost as instantly recognizable as as James Jamerson, because I feel like a lot of over the years, the one member of the Funk Brothers that gets a lot of the most recognition and credit, uh, you know, is definitely uh, James James Jamerson. And I feel like it's you know over the years uh, the other the other people who were a part of the, the the Funk Brothers group they don't really get as talked about as much as James Jamerson does. I mean Betty Benjamin gets a, gets gets you know mentioned sometimes. Most of the part is James Jamerson, but I definitely think that your flute playing on the on those records, I don't I don't know what it was. I guess it was there. I guess you were just mixed really hot. Into the into the into the songs, but I think your flute playing is almost as pretty much instantly as recognizable as James Jamerson. Maybe it's because the flute is sort of a high instrument and it sticks out really well on records, you know. So it's easy; it's so easy to point it, pick pick it out, you know. Well, so, yeah. Plus, the majority was piccolo, and you know that's a whole octave higher than flute, so right. It's really it's really outstanding. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, can you do you do you have any stories about like uh, Paul Reiser, or David DePitty, or Clarence Paul, or anybody like that? Some of the some of the Motown producers, or Norman Whitfield, or Holland Dozier Holland. Do you have any Do you have any recollections about like any? any? Not really. I mean, I talk to them all the time, but uh, no, no real stories. Okay. Except like I said, uh, Paul Reiser went to school with me. <laughs> That's but, so cool. Uh, uh, Dave Vandepit, oh my God, he was a great arranger too. Right. And uh, he he passed away on us, and yeah, yeah. I did a lot of things uh, for him. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, Dana, it was it was an absolute honor to have you as a guest on my podcast because this the whole point of me even doing this podcast is to teach people about, you know, who came before them as far as you know, songwriters and producers is concerned because I'm, I'm crazy about this music. I've loved it ever since I was a kid. And it's and it's funny when I running this because I'm, I'm, I'm a songwriter myself and I'm part of, of the sort of scene in L.A. as far as, you know, the singer songwriters doing, you know, going to, sh- you know, doing shows and everything. I've mm-hmm. noticed that so many of them aren't really aware of people like you and also like the studio musicians and the and the, you know and as far as like the the peop, real people behind the scenes because i feel like it's not something that you know and and the purpose of this podcast is to educate them about it you know and also to teach to teach them about exactly like you know some of some of the not so great things that happened in the music industry back in the 60s so that way they can they can learn from it and be like okay let's not make these same mistakes again right now you know so mm-hmm. that's that's another reason why i do this podcast but it's really it's really good talking to you and i mean it's an honor because i feel like i'm like like i'm i'm more than like 1 degree of separation away from some of the records that i love a lot you know and it's just it's really great to get to talk to you because it's like it's like i'm 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 like i'm like touching like i'm literally 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm literally talking to someone that basically, you know, you know, was a part of the music I love so much. And I'm hoping mm-hmm. that, you know, when, when people listen to this podcast, they'll, they'll go back and listen to your playing and be like, oh, my God, like, wow, this is just like her, her, you know, she was she sh- you your playing shines so well on those records that, you know, like, you know, when people listen to you, they'll be like, wow, you, you were really good. Oh, you know, so, sometimes I even hear something and I say, oh, my goodness, that's me, because I wound up overdubbing something then they uh, for Motown and they wound up taking it from Motown, just like the left bank, uh, Walk Away Renee. You know, it was the, the um, tops that first did it, but um, the uh, left bank um, took my uh, alto flute part Oh, you and know- I did a little tiny blurb in it. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing it say, "Oh my goodness, that's me!" <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, I think that's actually well. There's a, there's kind of a story behind that because I think that the Left Bank actually did it first because it was a song that was written by members of the Left Bank, like Michael Brown, and it was produced by their producers. And they and they, and they and they did did it first, and the Four Tops covered it. But I think I know the story behind this is that. Uh, there, there is this band that they were, that they were, they were, they were called the, I think they were called the Oxbow Incident, and they wanted to record a song. They wanted to do a cover, "Reach Out, I'll Be There" by the Four Tops, and they were on the same label as the Left Bank. They were on Smash Records, and basically what happened was that when the Oxbow Incident wanted to record "Reach Out, I'll Be There" by the Four Tops, Motown was very hesitant to let them do that, so they made a deal with them. They said, "Hey." We'll record. We'll we'll let you do a cover. Reach out. I'll be there if you let us do a cover one of your songs that you own the rights to, and that's when they, and that's basically when they did. And that's basically how the cover of Walkway Renee by the Four Tops happened was because of that, uh, of that um, you know sort of thing that happened. And yeah, uh, yeah. So well, I didn't know that, but the interlude, like I said, the Four. Well, I didn't say, but the Four Tops used my um, uh, electric flute. And uh, yeah, then the left bank used the uh, alto flute part. That one interlude that was dubbed in. Wow, that's so cool. Um, now, 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 another cool part about this song, about another really great record that you played on, was "Reflections" by Di- by Diana Ross and the Supremes. That, but that's mm-hmm. that's what their name was at that point. They weren't called the Supremes anymore. They're called Diana Ross and the Supremes. Um, when you played that part, now one of the coolest parts about that record is that really weird introduction where they're doing that, where they're using that really spacey, weird keyboard, keyboard, and I believe that was a early Moog synthesizer or something like that. But I, I, I love that part so much. I mean, it's it just it just makes that whole record, you know, that that weird Moog synthesizer part. Do you remember anything about that session? I remember the session and I remember the record. And then after that, it reflections was used for one year as the opening on China beach. Wow. On T on TV. And we never got paid for that either. Wow. That's crazy. They even were going to try to start a, a lawsuit on it, but somehow it fell apart. Wow. Huh? That's, that's yeah that was that was a real outstanding one I like doing that one too yeah absolutely um yeah I, I love your flute playing and for once in my life too that's such a really really great song um the, the now that record was kind of interesting because it went through a couple different uh you know like versions before it really hit with Stevie Wonder's version 
uh, Gene Dushan and Barbara McNair did a version of it first, and so the Temptations and Tony Bennett, and and there were and there were all these really sort of Frank Sinatra sort of easy listening, you know, standard, you know, versions of these songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, this song, and it was, and that's what the song was. And then Clarence Paul basically re- completely redid and did a whole rearrangement of it. And it, and I and I love what they did to that song because I don't know if it would have been a hit if they didn't do that. But it's a really really cool arrangement for that song, um, you know. And there's so much going on in that record. Everything from the the piano playing to the guitar playing on that record. Not just James Emerson bass lines, but the background vocals are amazing on that song too. Did you ever? get to uh, talk to any like the Andantes or the originals or any of the background singers for Motown? Um, well, I don't know about the background singers, but I, uh, sometimes when we'd be recording, there's a booth uh, that was actually where the uh, engineers were and the actual Supremes or the main singers were actually in that booth at the same time. Wow. And then after we recorded, every once in a while, I would go in and add clapping and stuff like that, too. You know, so. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to add something to that, but uh, what did you ask just before that? Oh, I was I was asking you if... Uh... If like, cause I, cause I was talking about Stevie Wonder's for once in my life and the amazing. Okay, I do remember background. Yeah, vocals. that was actually written for flute. Wow. And I did that part on piccolo, and I always thought that they should have cranked it up a little more. It's kind of hidden. Yeah, I hear you. For being, yeah, for being, it would have been really outstanding, you know, if they had just, uh, yeah, brought that part out a little more. Yeah, I hear you. Um, so I, I think that's about it as far as the questions that, um, I had for you. I mean, you just, you you really, you're just one, you're one of the most instantly, like I said, instantly recognizable musicians. And I hope that when people listen to this podcast, you know, they'll, 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 they'll learn more about you and they'll be able to connect the dots and just be completely blown away and amazed by how recognizable you are as a musician. And hopefully, uh, this this will this will this will help you you know get people to really recognize who you are and the con- contribution mm-hmm. you made to these records. So that way you're not you're not sort of just someone that is just like not super well known or no one really knows about you because because <laughs> you know because I I would I, w- I would love it if if more people really sort of recognize you for the work that you did and also be like oh my god you're the you you actually did. Like, you know, your your playing was so amazing and it was so essential to these songs that like I can't I can't listen or reach out. I'll be there in that beginning. And I can't I, without without that flute part. You know, I, I can't I can't imagine it with without it being there. I mean, sure. I mean, like, you know, the, the it will probably would have been fine if, if, if they if they had uh, if they just had the guitar. But I think the flu is really makes that introduction. Yeah, the, that, that's of, piccolo, too. Also. Yeah. That. Yeah. And the flute and the piccolo. Like I. Yeah. Like, it's, right. you know, it's it, like I, I can't imagine those records, you know, without that, without without those without those parts in them. So. You know, like I, I think they were so essential. I mean, yes, people, you know, play them live without without them, but still, I feel like your playing was so important that I, I think that people should recognize you for that. You know. Well, you sure have a lot of knowledge, and that is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I grew up listening to this music, and I've done so much research on it. You know, and I think uh-huh. that, um, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of up to me to really 
educate a lot of these, you know, younger people about this stuff because I don't feel like a lot of them are really as heavily as interested in this music as I am. So I feel like mm-hmm. it's kind of up to me to sort of teach people about this stuff because, again, like all the people that grew up listening to this music back in the day, you know, that were young in the 60s, you know, eventually they're not going to be here with us anymore. And I don't, and I, right. and, you know, yeah. and it's like, you know, and, and their, their music that they grew up listening to is also going to, you know, eventually disappear with them. So I feel like it's my job to sort of pass this music down to future generations. And so that way, you know, it doesn't become ancient, forgotten about, you know, so. Yeah. Actually, um, well, this goes back a while, maybe, uh, 25 years or something like that but i actually uh got an award as one of them uh women of motown from no billy way, d really? williams and that that was a shock because we just went to a party they were talking about um you know who who's getting an you know an award and that all of a sudden they said oh and then there was this little girl who tried to fit in and i'm sitting there like oh my goodness <laughs> I sure had no idea that was something else. Wow. Yeah. That's Before we go, I want to mention one thing with the uh, Christmas season coming up. Uh, all the Christmas things uh, we did um, mostly were done, first of all, in the summer. And, uh, oh, the Supremes and, and, and uh, others, you know, did different Christmas things. But my favorite was Someday at Christmas with Stevie Wonder. Wow. And uh, it's got, uh, they all have, you know, a number of things, but they were really outstanding. And little Michael was uh, singing like, um, I saw Mama kissing Santa Claus and things like that. So, I mean, there are lots of uh, things that, uh, um, that the Jackson 5 did too. And occasionally we would have a Christmas party and they'd all be there. <laughs> Wow. Just little memories. Wow. And do you, do you have any memories, specific memories about Stevie Wonder when you did like the My Sharia Moore uh, opening back then? Well, he wasn't there, but uh, Paul did the arrangement. And uh, yeah, he wasn't there that, that particular day. I didn't, I didn't even see him then. I didn't, I don't think I saw him till later. Wow. But then a couple times when I was even on tour and he was singing or something there, I would see him uh, while I was out on tour. Wow. I spent 10 years, uh, well, yeah, on, on tour. Yeah. Uh, most Mostly with Phantom of the Opera. Right. And, and, uh, and, and Smokey, was he, was he there when he, when he, when he did the flute parts for like Tears of a Clown and Special Occasion? No. Oh, no. wow. Oh. He did that at a different time. Wow. Gotcha. All right. Well, you know, it was, it was great talking to you again. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll send this over to you, um, before I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, uh, I share it on the, the social media platforms, but you can, if you want to listen to this, when it comes out, it's going to be, I don't, I don't know if you, uh, you know, how te- technology, how, how good, Not good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hear you. Um, well, you can, you can also find this on my website samwilliamsmusic.net all you have to do is just search that up on any web browser and you can find uh this podcast that's what is it called it's called uh the website is samwilliamsmusic.net so that's sam what sam oh sam williams oh okay your whole name okay yes dot net samwilliamsmusic.net yeah so that's okay that's 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 where you'll be able to you know find my you know this podcast which is called the millennial throwback machine 
That's the name of it. So, but okay, you, let me let me write that down. Absolutely. Millennial throwback machine. Yeah, the millennial throwback machine. Okay. Good. That's fine. Yeah. Okay, well, if ever you have any other questions, just don't hesitate to give me a call. All right, absolutely. And in the meantime, have a good holiday season. All right, thanks. Mm-hmm. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. There you have it, folks. Um, this was a really, really interesting interview. It's, 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 it's a change of pace from the type of people I normally have on my podcast because at this point, all the people I've had on my podcast were guys. And this is the first woman I've ever had on my show. And she is also the first studio musician I've ever had on my podcast. And it's kind of interesting to hear things from her perspective and kind of what she went through as a woman in the music industry back in the 60s. Because, man, she just went through a lot. And you can tell just by, you know, me talking to her and me finding this, finding things out about her career just by me interviewing her. I mean, it's just, wow. It's just, it really... Hopefully this will strike a chord with a lot of people and hopefully there's a learning lesson from it. And also, I, I do want to say that, like I said, this is my first interview episode since February. So uh, please excuse uh, the weirdly kind of awkward ending of this interview because sometimes when I do these interviews, it's difficult for me to figure out how to end it. I mean, sometimes it's a breeze, it's a walk in the park, depending on who I'm talking to. Um, you know, it's really easy for me to just conclude it, but sometimes it's not so easy to conclude it because sometimes, th you know, I want them to contribute something else, like what happened with this interview, or they contribute something else. And so, again, like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like it's sometimes really, really easy for me to reel things in and just conclude an interview, but sometimes it's not. So, I mean, it all depends on who I have on my show, and this time it was a little awkward towards the end. And, yeah, I mean... That's just, it just happens on occasion. Now, it doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen on occasion. So, yeah, but other than that, if you found this interview really, really interesting and you learned some really, really cool facts and you just you just learned so much from listening to this interview episode, this podcast, and you've never heard of this woman before, but you know the song she played on, you love them so much, and if you, and you know, or if you don't know the songs that she played on, you learned a lot, because what I'm going to do is that, uh, for the songs we talked about on this episode, I'm going to put them in the playlist, you know, so you'll be able to listen to them so that way you get an idea for what she's talking about in this interview. So you'll get to hear, um, you know, the songs that we talked about in the show. So um, don't worry about that. I always do that with these interview episodes. So um, if, you, if, you, if, if anything went way over your head with what she was talking about, don't worry. I'll include the songs in the playlist. So all I have to do is check them out. So, but anyways, if you're a millennial and you learned so much from listening to this podcast and you never knew about this woman, but you fell in love with the songs that she played on, then, you know, if you learned so much from it, then please reach out to me at Sam, ltboyicloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies and check out more of my original music at samlemusic.net. As per usual, things you can check out the link that are link in the, link in the links in the description of this podcast or the EP I put out this year. And by the way, I am writing a lot of new music. So um, I have three songs in the can right now. And again, they kind of sound like rough demos. So I'm not really sure. I mean, not like super, super rough demos, but they're not like I wouldn't release them right now. So I'm still working on them. So um, I'll let you guys know when those songs are out. And in the meantime, you can check out the songs I do have out right now. And yeah, so um, 
if you if you liked what you heard today, please reach out to me at sam.cboy.icloud.com. And or you can reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. You can also follow me on TikTok, too. It's a new platform I'm on. It's the same as my Instagram username, iheartoldies, and you can reach out to me on there as well. And, yeah, so, um, yeah, I love if you guys can check out the EP put out this year and the two interviews I did this year with Hawk Magazine, Shout Out LA. Those are all in the description of this episode of this podcast. Um, I love being featured in those two publications. I don't know when my next one is going to be because – um, a lot of those sort of things are, you know, you, you have to pay for a lot of this stuff. So right now my finances are really tough right now. So I'm not sure exactly when the next one's going to come, but I'm thankful I got to do the two ones I did this year. So that was really cool. And, uh, yeah. So, um, another thing you can do, another way you can support my podcast is that you can check out the Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast. And there, the reason why I have a playlist for my, for my podcast is because, I don't only play a short, short bit of music on the show, and that's for legal reasons. So if you want to hear the full-length songs, if you've never heard them before, you got to follow these playlists and listen to them, depending on if you have Spotify or YouTube. I wouldn't make one for Apple Music, but I don't have Apple Music. So you just, you know, for if you're a Spotify or YouTube listener, then you'll be able to find all the songs you can listen that I've talked about on my podcast so far on those playlists. So... Um, you can you can please go listen to them, and this would also this should also give you a good idea for the kind of music I talk about on my show, and it might might you might even come up with more ideas for songs to talk about next on podcasts that haven't yet that you can suggest to me. I love if you can do that. Please do that. You can email me at samltwilliamicloud.com, or you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. And another thing you can check out, and this is really cool, is the official music video I did this year. That's another cool thing I did this year. I really, I really enjoyed doing that music video. I don't know when my next one's going to be shot, but I mean, I th- hopefully I'll do another one soon. But for now, you can check that out. Um, I'd love if you guys could reach out to me and let me know anything in that video. And another thing you can check out is the official Redbubble merch store for this podcast. There you'll be able to find all the official Millennial Throwback Machine merchandise that you can purchase online if you'd like to. Um, that's another way you can support this podcast as well as listening to it if you feel so inclined to. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on the logo plus the price of each item in the store. You can email that to me at samltboyicloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram iheartoldies. And um, you can also check out some of the new merch I did this year. Um, you know, including for my EP, Turquoise Apricot. I put out new merchandise, so that's really cool. Um, but yeah, so as far as when my next interview is concerned, it's coming up real soon. Um, a lot of times when I do these interview episodes, it's like I do one and then it's nothing for a really, really long time. But it just so happens I've got some more people that wind up that want to do a podcast interview, including Brooks Arthur. Now, I, I t- I've talked about this before on my podcast. I've been trying to get him on for a while. Okay, I, I, I thought I wasn't going to be able to get him on, and I couldn't earlier this year, but it just so happens that he's cool with doing another, doing an interview, actually. I mean, I just caught him at a bad time earlier this year, but I'm so happy that he still wants to do it, so I'm really, really excited to talk to him. So um, that's going to be really good, too, because, like, you know, he's another behind-the-scenes guy. He was an engineer in New York in the Brill Building, you know, working with his song. He was also a songwriter, and he produced a lot of really cool records back in the 60s and i'm very excited to talk to him because i've never had an engineer on my podcast that's going to be another first you know so that's going to be really cool and i can't wait to hear him sort of share the nitty-gritty details about how exactly they recorded music back then plus share some stories on the studio musicians they've worked with as well and the songwriters because um, he's worked with some really really amazing songwriters and producers 
um, as an engineer. So including Jerry Goff and Carol King and Burt Burns. So I'm very, very excited to talk to him. And Jeffrey and Ellie Brennan. So he's he's on a l- he records so many different records. Um, I'm very, very excited to talk to him. So that's going to be really cool. That might be actually next month. So, um, you know, depending on how things go, I might just do one single episode after this one and then do the interview. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out the scheduling is concerned. I mean, at probably after I finish record you know doing this episode i'll figure out exactly what the scheduling is going to look like for the next interview episode i'll let you guys know about that um but also another thing i wanted to mention before i end this interview episode is that this again like this is my first interview episode in a really long time so uh i i I try to do the the levels the best that i could do in the beginning but i you know i kind of messed up so she comes in kind of hot in the beginning please excuse me for that again like it was my first interview episode in so long so um, you know, it's again, like it was just, I, I was just still trying to get in the hang of having another person on my podcast because it's been solo episodes for so long, especially for this year. So, um, you know, again, like I'm just, you know, I, I really, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I, it's, n- I don't do this on a regular basis. It's not like I do an interview every single week. Otherwise I would get the hang of this by now. But a lot of times there's a couple quirks here and there, depending on, how long I go without doing an interview episode and doing one for the first time in a while. So um, please be a bear in mind that and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this one. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, this will open your eyes to sort of other people that were involved in records back in the music industry back in the 60s, other than the big names, the people you already know about. So, um, but yeah, so I'm Sam Williams and thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving. Until next week, please. Uh-huh.